The Fujicast is an independent loading zone production. The, the picture you paint of London is like 28 days later, Kev. Last week you did a, a couple of uh, workshops, didn't you? Was it a two-day workshop or two workshops over two days? No, it was one workshop, two days. Two days, right, okay. But you said it was a lot quieter. Yeah, it was really quiet, really quiet. Actually, yeah. we were there over the... The second day was the day that we moved to level A, whatever it's called, in oh yeah, yeah endemic yeah. control. Yeah. So it was noticeably busier that day, yeah. uh, especially in Farringdon and stuff like that, where I was kind of Holborn, Farringdon, when I was walking from the hotel yeah. through the legal area. So obviously all of the legal bods have been told to get back to their desks on that day. But the day before it was, yeah, very quiet. Lots so, of, so- uh, famous old shops are boarded up. No. What, well, mm-hmm. what famous old shops? Well, loads of them, all of the old, you know, not like Lily Whites or anything like that, but like a lot of the, a lot of the traditional old, you know, some of the bookshops, a lot of the bookshop, a lot oh. of the guitar shops on Denmark Street are gone. Oh. A lot of stuff has, has, has not really survived. Does it make, uh, when you're doing your street courses then, do you, do you um, I mean, obviously the you part, have to... Co- the fancy dress and party shops are thriving now. <laughs> are they really? Why would a party shop thrive at this, yeah, during this the pandemic? Maybe they get a tax break or something, don't know. Were you dressing yeah. up in, in Malmesbury? Don't well, answer. I wasn't, don't answer. I wasn't personally. <laughs> yeah, what, what goes on behind those? We can't, <laughs> we can't comment on that until Christina Dick has done her uh, her investigation. That's true. The Fuji cast. Yeah, good point, Kev. Don't get yourself caught out here. We might never see that report um, as we sit here. Um, oh, it's I just still, read that today, it, yeah. It's still to come out, isn't it? But um, I will be very transparent. That's my yeah, best. But she can't now, can she? Because literally, literally today, the the uh, police have said that she's Gray is not allowed to mention anything that they're investigating. That's true. Yeah, which is yeah. Basically, all of it. Yeah, he must be saying <laughs> that's yep. that one sorted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it I, reminds I, me in some ways. Of <laughs> but anyway, I'll carry on. Oh, Kevin! <laughs> I, d- <laughs> I, did, I did know we should retract. Oh my God, Kevin! Oh dear. Oh, you see the trouble I have with the editing of this this program. I'm not even sure how we can take that bit out because it needs context. <laughs> there we go. I'll leave that in there, Mullins. You can answer the Gemma for that one. Right, welcome to the uh, the Fujicast. You and your questions from the electronic mailbag, and of course also through the Fujicast uh, private Facebook group that you're welcome to become a part of. Send your mails through, click at fujicast.co.uk and, uh, of course, you can join in with the, the Facebook group. Just join in with a pinned, the pinned, um, uh, I was going to say notice. It's not a notice, is it? Post. Thread. Uh, a p- thread, thread. Thank you, thread uh, at, thread. The, uh, at the top. Um, we don't have a book of the week this week, but we do have a guest, Simon Blakesley from Canada, um, part of our new, I'm not going to call it season now, Kev, the new series of, of interviews, who is an aviation photographer in the beautiful Yukon, um, where it's always minus 189 by the looks of it. Is that a Delta? Yukon Delta. Yukon, yes. Delta? Is it a Delta? I think so. Well, it's very cold, always. Yes, it's like always. minus 35. Was it, was, it, was it him that put that thing on, on the uh, Facebook saying... The temperature said minus 35 feels like minus 36. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Can you imagine us with those sort of temperatures? What would happen in Malmesbury? I'd love it. I'd like proper cold. It's cold today as we're recording this, and I like, I do like proper, proper cold. Yeah, but there's a difference between one degree, Kev, and minus 35 or 36. I remember remember in the battle days when I worked in the city, Mm. there was one year where I was getting in the car. I used to get in the car boat. 10 past five every morning and I was getting in the car and it was 
it was like minus seven, minus nine for about a week. Yeah. And I was cold. I loved it. And I used to drive as far as I could possibly drive with the windows open to get it as cold as possible inside what? the car and then put the heaters on full blast. Loved that. It was your version of going in and out of a hot sauna, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> loved it. If I could have driven with my head out the roof, I would have done. You know what you should have owned? You should have owned a VW Beetle. Yeah. That would have been perfect for you. Always cold. <laughs> right um let's go for questions so are, are you gonna start i can start matthew jennings hi gents hope you are both well i have recently sold all my sony full frame gear as i got sick of taking photos with the starship enterprise he does say starship but obviously he means starship enterprise and wanted to slow down and enjoy my photography again so i treated myself to an x100v and an X-Pro1 with the original lens lineup for it. As I'm turning 40 in March, I'm desperate to create a project for the year, but struggle creatively with concepts. Where do you get your ideas from and your projects you create? Matt in Yorkland. <laughs> Yorkland, like that. <laughs> ah, well, yeah, Matt. I think Matt's a listener to Photography Daily because that's what we call all the towns now. Oh, so right. you'll be Malmesbury land. So. Yorkland. So Yorkland. <laughs> Yorkland. What do you do with England, though? Because that becomes England land. England land land. Yeah, <laughs> I often think of the titles, Kev, before <laughs> before the projects. Mm. That kind of drives me onto the project, and I, I don't really go looking for projects. They kind of find they find you, I think. Yeah, I, I mean they do, but uh, we do a lot of project stuff on on um, uh, you know when we're shooting the street stuff. And yeah, yeah. I assign people. So, for example, last week they were assigned. Um, Projects, if you like, and they were they were very very open for uh, translation, if you like. So there were things like the beating heart, the black holes of London, off right. the beaten track, my shop window, a curious place, things yeah. like that. You know, yeah. I like I like kind of giving taking very very subjective titles, and then and then that galvanizes you to go and look for something. So, so a curious so- place, for example, if I said to um, uh, Matthew in Yorkland. You know, right, your project today or for the next week or for the next month, I want you to investigate a theme of a curious place in York. Yeah. You go. There you go, Matt. You've got your project. So do you randomly do you randomly sort of pick them from a hat or something and everybody goes off with a with a title? Yeah, they pick a number. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, otherwise you you can end up, you, you know, I, I find sometimes I find it easier when somebody else gives you a, a theme than thinking about it for yourself. Yeah, yeah. I heard about something, um, a, a kind of a prompt jar where you put in, although this is more, uh, it's not, it's kind of project led. Kind of similar, yeah. Yeah, where you put in ideas of things you're going to go and shoot that day yeah. or, or ways to shoot. And that becomes a project in and of itself to a degree. Yeah, similar, yeah, that's true. Similar kind of thing. What project? What projects have you have you titled in the past, Kev? What myself personally? Yeah. What what photo projects have you done that you? Oh, oh most of mine is still ongoing. I have uh, old people in love, like that one. Oh, that's nice. I have uh, the one where I take a picture of the person who sits opposite me on the train. I try and sit in the same seat all the time on the tube. That is yeah. so. Uh, but well, that so- that has trans- that's moved it a bit really now yeah. because. I started doing that before as a photographer when I was going to London. I mean, it all started with a period where this one guy used to get on the train every day yeah. and he used to bring a record player and some speakers with him. Really? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he had record player and speakers, a battery-powered record player. <laughs> Just sit there. <laughs> yeah. No, he was listening to like Bach and oh, classical music oh, and everything. Okay. Right. Proper eccentric guy. Yeah. And uh, I used to used to take pictures on my phone way before I was a photographer. <laughs> and ever since then, I've kind of... And because of him, I started sitting in roughly the same place on the tube every day. You must have been on the Metropolitan Line or something. That sort of behaviour doesn't happen on the Victoria. <laughs> no, or I the Baker Line. I would have been... Uh, 
It would have been Bakerloo line, yeah. Bakerloo? No, surely. Paddington Green Park. That sort of behaviour yeah. is not acceptable on the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, whatever. I mean, um, I caught yesterday... Oh, sorry, last week, I did, when I was in London, I did the uh, the Rush of Life. That was my um, three-hour project I designed myself, a Rush of Life. And, what, and what, what sort of pictures did you make? I ended up doing some slow shutter spot stuff. Right. So um, I got uh-huh. some nice ones actually yeah. because, like I said, London it was grey, cold, and not many people there. Yeah. So I ended up doing, um, you know, like people waiting at uh, crossroads, crossings, and then like London buses or bikes or whatever whizzing past. So they were blurry, but the people were stood there, usually staring at their phone or with their headphones on. Um, so yeah, it was quite. I was quite happy with the results actually. Yeah, for that so, one, a rush of life. Mm, s- strong idea, Kev. Strong idea. Right. Um, Back to questions then. Um, Shade Dayan. Hello, boys. Great work on, on your podcast. Recently started listening. I use Canon for my weddings, but I've been cheating on Canon for years with my X100S, or it could be X100s, which I um, I love to use for personal work. Uh, got great results at concerts, etc. What Fujifilm lens stroke body combination would you recommend for weddings? I'm hoping to have a Fuji on my left hip and a Canon on my right with my RF 70 to 200. Could be a song, that, couldn't it? Could be, couldn't it? I, I've always found it very difficult to work with. Uh, now, you know I've, I've used both systems for weddings, Fuji and Canon, but I'm never quite sure that I can um, mix the systems when I when I work. I take my hat off to people that, that do. I, I just confuse myself and start pressing the wrong buttons and stuff. Um, yeah, I think it's more challenging, but plenty of people do it. I would say... If you if you've got your X one hundred, the X one hundred along with a Canon system, I think would be fine because actually you're not going to be shooting that much with your X one hundred probably, especially if you've got seventy to two hundred on. That sounds to me like you you know that's a kind of workhorse lens. Um, so yeah, I think it'd be fine, and the X one hundred is light enough to not not worry about. You can pare it down in terms of the settings and, and all that kind of stuff quite easily. It, it will get more a bit more complicated, I think, if you start using a more uh, a camera with more kind of dials and bells and whistles and stuff like an XT4. Um, but plenty of people do it, so yeah. shouldn't really be a problem. Yeah. What my Pinterest password is, by the way? Do I know what was? Sorry, my Pinterest password is Pinterest. I'm trying to log on to Pinterest. And right, I'll look in here see because my, my Kev drawer is just down here. So get past all your lenses, and there's your mm. password book. No, sorry. Are you are you using it again then? Pinterest. Yeah. Well, no, something just popped up, and I wanted to look at it on Pinterest. And of course, with Pinterest, you can't actually look at anything unless you log in. Oh uh, yeah, of course. So yeah. Um, I. I yeah, no is the answer, and that's one of the reasons it yeah. forces you to log in. When was the last thing. time you actively used Pinterest within your business? Oh, I don't think I ever have. Well, I really why, don't. Why? And actually saying that, I'm, I am now, because what popped up is something that I, I was interested in for the studio. Yeah. But I can't actually see it, because now it's saying, you've got to log on. And I'm like, I can see the preview of it, and, and, and you've got to click the button to log on. And I can't remember the log on, and now it says you can't do anything, and, and, and it just wants me to log in with Google. And I'm like, no, you. Let me just see it. I want to just see that picture. Don't, don't be so angry with it. Oh, it makes me mad. Not as mad as all the other websites that come up. As soon as you go on them, it pops massive pop-ups saying, do you agree with all of our cookies and our GDR and consent? Accept all, accept some, accept none. Click these, do that. Do that. And I'm like, no. Nope. There seem to be more of those these, these days. For, for a while, um, I know, you know, it, it's a legal obligation, I know. But, but for a while, it was kind of, 
it was more subtle. It's, it's become the, the law hasn't changed again or something that says that thou shalt make this a bit, bit of a sledgehammer approach. I don't even think it's a legal obligation, to be totally honest with you. I think people are just covering all their bases. Yeah. And it's mostly American websites. In America, from my understanding, I might be wrong with this, but in America, you don't have these issues. Right. It's when you go to an American website from a, a European location, and whether actually we even constitute being in a European location any longer in terms of the EU, I don't know. And of course, in America, they cover all the bases very well. So yeah. it's like, boom, there you go. No entry. It's like having a big bloke on the door, isn't it? You can't come in unless you sign my book. I just don't go to those websites, honestly. They just they're just losing traffic. It's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Whoever a- thought about whoever thought that up is the same bloke who thought about putting seven tests in a in a in a box in a COVID box. Ridiculous, stupid. But there's loads of mo- loads of lawyers making money out of it, isn't there? So rich uh, get richer, poor get poorer. I heard the other day, by the way, when you're talking about whether the UK is part of any any anything, uh, a guy on a, on a phone in show phoned in to say um, he worked for the ports. On the ports down in uh, down in Dover, I think, and he mm. said we don't call it UK anymore. We call it the SK. And the host said, well, "What's the SK?" He said, "Severed Kingdom." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he seemed a little yeah. bit down at the time. Yeah, I feel a bit like that. Severed, but anyway, regardless, I mean, Brexit's done. We, you know, we are where we are. So yeah. we should uh, we should all get on with trying to make it better. And the first thing they can do is stop using those stupid pop ups on every website you go to. <laughs> Right, um, next from the Facebook group. What side of the bed did uh, Mullins wake up this morning Morning on, Gemma? Was it the left or, or the right? Uh, oh, right, okay. Right. Um, yeah, I was tired this morning, I have to say. Uh, Matt Sills says, yes. Hi, Kev. Hi, Neil. Blah, blah. Happy New Year. Blah, blah. Yada, yada. Oh, I promised myself not to say Happy New Year. Oh, you did uh, last week. Oh, you've, you've failed, Marlins. I know, yeah. It's because I, I don't pre-read the questions any longer. Bit of a bit of a not-so-QQ for you. Yeah. I'm thinking about rural photography workshops on my mail to Mesoto- Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. Mail run uh, later Me- this year. Just call wondered, it messy. Just call it messy. That's what he calls it. Wondered if you might be able to give me some advice. Number yeah. one, when it comes to workshops, is it best to offer structured experience or to shoot, in quotes, on the hoof? Number two, how much time do you need to dedicate towards camera operation user tips? If any, do you need to be aware of all camera systems or is this taken as a given for those attending? Number three, what would you say is the optimum length in hours for a workshop? I'm thinking 11 a.m. till 4 p.m. with a lunch break. (laughs) Well, take uh, (laughs) a debrief towards... Take, take each one of those questions gradually. All right. Number one. one, of one. When it comes to workshops, is it best to offer structured experiences or to shoot on the hoof? Personally, the workshops I've you look, you're more the workshop king than me. But personally, the workshops that I have done, I, I find have to have some sort of structure. It's like making a photograph, isn't it? It's got to have a start, middle, and end if you're making a story, so that people kind of know where they are. I think people feel comfortable in that respect. Now it can it can of course uh, bend and uh, and change as the day goes along and and react to certain circumstances and situations such as you were talking about with finding that all the all the shops were closed down which may have played to uh, to some of the themes that you had but on the whole I think having some sort of structure some sort of you know we're going from here to there and we'll finish there is not a bad idea yeah totally agree um, otherwise especially if it's uh you know kind of unless it's a technical um, workshop if it's if it's like street photography or, or landscape photography or or wildlife or something yeah. you, you definitely i think you need to have a, a um, structure otherwise it just becomes a, a tourist guide you just become a tour guide yes yes uh you know and, and there's plenty of those 
of those kind of workshops where where you know you just get taken from one place to the next without any kind of instruction and mm. you know you might as well just get a an oyster card frankly i always feel for the um for the people that do the uh, the wildlife you mentioned the wildlife and i do i do think about this when people do there's some um there's some top uh, bird photographers ornitho- ornithology isn't it but if you sit in the hide and you don't see the thing that you're hoping to see for the whole day that must be tricky <laughs> oh yeah i mean it's the same with street photography it's you can't sometimes nothing happens you know and in fact in most cases nothing in fact in most cases nothing of particular substance happens yeah you've got to wait a long time to get a you know to get a, a powerful uh street photography shot if you like so yeah but and that's why the instruction is there because it's you know you're arming people with tools and techniques and, uh, and a workflow so yeah on a, on a wildlife shoot it's not like having a model is it you can't you just can't no. legislate for for where the gnu or the gazelle or the other animal, starting with G, is going to go. Well, I was thinking birds. Do gnus fly? <laughs> do you do gnu? I'm a, I'm a gnu. <laughs> How do you do? <laughs> I wondered whether you were going to do that. <laughs> Did you gnu, gnu, gnu? I was going to be a gnu. <laughs> oh, dear. Right, next question in, in that. In that uh, next, next part of the question. Next part, um, yeah, yeah. Interestingly, Alan, Alan Hewitt did reply uh, to Matt's point on that. Um, and said, do you specifically want Kevin O'Neill to answer or can anybody with experience? And Matt said, yes, Alan, you can reply. And Alan hasn't yet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But I think Alan would say the same sort of thing. Alan would say the same thing, but he will have, obviously, because he's a wildlife photographer, he'll have much more... Uh, much more apposite ap- ap- uh, instruction on that. He, he's, okay, number he's, two. he's still in the hide waiting for the GNU. That's why he's not answered. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> he's thinking, he's talking to his mate who's been looking for the gazelle, thinking, oh, I wish I'd gone for the gazelle today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how much time do you need to dedicate towards camera operation user tips, if any? Um, do you need to be aware of all camera systems or is this taken as a given for those attending? Well, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand this one to you because on all, all those that I've done, I've uh, I've never... I've never got involved in in different camera systems. It's not been part of anything that I. Yeah, I don't. Taught. I don't. Uh, I, I say that anybody can come on my workshop, yeah. regardless of which yeah. camera system they use. I would say eighty percent of people do use Fujifilm system. Yeah. Um, but for example, last week we had a Sony shooter and a Nikon shooter. Um, they sat at the back of the class, but other than that, it was all fine. <laughs> oh, Kev. <laughs> no, they're, they're very good and so yeah i don't have any any kind of constraints in that regards um what what i do say to people is that you do need to kind of understand how to you know use your camera in a in a, in a basic i.e change the settings yeah y- you know i don't expect them to understand things like although a lot of them do things like zone focusing and you know all the other kind of the stuff that we go through yeah. uh, metering systems and all that but they often do sometimes they don't i've had people turn up with just phones I've had people, I had one person once turn up with a um, a bellows camera on a tripod. What? <laughs> that, was, wow. that was interesting. Well, when you're trying to move quickly, that can't be easy. I know, it was good. It was good. It was good. I saw the images about six weeks later once he got the, the plates done. Were they um, good? Yeah. Well, they were different, put it that way. But yeah, yeah they were really, really, Fantastic. I loved them. Fantastic. So, uh, yeah, um, so I would suggest if, you know, if people are interested in, in coming out into the sticks of uh, Mesopotamia, very rarely are people likely to want to come on kind of 
photography workshops if they don't understand their camera to yeah. a certain extent already. Otherwise, what they're probably looking for is how to use your camera workshops, which, of course, probably won't be in the middle of Mesopotamia. No, probably not. Yeah. No. So and, that's a, a slightly different thing. So, mm. yeah. And those, and those people that come on your course that, that do bring the, the Nikon, do, is part of that course, when you put them at the back, is that, is that to work out how to pronounce the actual camera? Nikon. <laughs> do you remember that? <laughs> It? Uh, I, I'd, I'd say now that most people, even the ones using bringing Canon and Nikon cameras, are using mirrorless. Yes, uh, which I'd say over the last kind of since since COVID has kind of come and almost gone, hopefully gone. Yeah, it's touch, flipped. Touch wood, Kev. Touch wood. Yeah, touch wood. It's flipped to to a far more uh, greater people who use uh, yes. Nikon and Canon using mirrorless cameras now. Yeah. yeah. Right, next part of the question. Yeah, SLR is dead. Uh, okay, right. Um, what would you say is the optimum length in hours for a workshop? I'm thinking 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. with a lunch break of four hours. No, no he didn't say four hours, <laughs> lunch break. <laughs> with a lunch break and debrief afterwards. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I mean, honestly, it depends. In my mind, at least, it depends on what you're doing. So I have, when I do my studio stuff here, my, uh, my, my kind of classroom based workshops. It's a lot more nine to five, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but when you're out in the street and there's a lot of walking and everything, yeah. typically mine go from about 10 till five, but yeah. depending on the light, we stop shooting you know, anywhere between half three and four, uh, depending on the light. And then we go and I do an, an hour of editing and workflow and stuff like that. So yeah, typically ten till five for my standard stuff. Um, but it's what whatever you're comfortable with, really. And uh, I feel like uh, you know, eleven till four with a lunch break. Like lunch is usually at twelve, isn't it? So mm. kind of you don't get much of a, a, a go in the morning kind of thing. But it does depend. You know, I mean, Mesopotamia in the summer it's going to be roasting hot, isn't it? And in the winter it's going to be freezing. So you've got to take those kind of things into consideration. You know, I take the reason why I start at ten. I used to start earlier and finish earlier, but start later because uh, trains are cheaper for people to get in and yeah. you know the, the traffic and all that kind of stuff so five hours five six seven hours i think is reasonable for a day but uh, you know carefully. when you're working across a couple of days though i mean I, i'm doing my photo walk retreat next week and three of those days are the challenge days if you like Mm-hmm. Although there are some sort of some much easier days e- either side, but they're kind of the shooting will 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 end, I suppose, when the light goes down. But I do intend to do be doing a little bit more shooting in the dark as well. Um, but then we're all together; it's a big team, and we're together for for you know, five days, three of those being the challenge days. You've got a bit more leverage, I suppose, haven't you? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you, you you just play it. You'll you'll figure yeah. it out, and if it if it feels wrong in the first instance, you'll change it the next day. Yeah. And you know, it's, there's no. I don't think there's a real right, wrong answer to that. What, what about what about the uh, the meals going for meals with? Because uh, this is important. It's a logistics part of it that Matt might be thinking about spending the social time um, with with those that you um, that you're teaching as well. Yeah, well, we stop for lunch. We we take normally twenty minutes or so yeah. in a coffee shop on the on the street ones. Mm-hmm. If they're here in the studio, it's I have uh, lunch delivered, okay. usually yeah. half an hour. Yeah. What about then, what, what about the day between the two um, street course days, Kev? So do you, do we you went go out for in the Chinese. evening? Do we went for a Chinese meal, nice. We went for a Chinese um, and it was really early. We finished, we'd finished it by half six. Right. Uh, we, we were, it was been a long day. We'd walked. Yeah. I, well, I'd walked 31,000 steps by the end of that day. <laughs> um, oh, Kev. 
So, wow. yeah. Well, there's a up. challenge for us on the photo walk retreat next week. We've got to beat Kev's 31,000 steps. You've you gone. Good luck with that. must be able to do that on the photo walk day, surely. Around the, around the Isle of Wight, you'll end up getting your feet wet. Sure, surely. You have to walk around it seven times. <laughs> it's not that small, Kev. Ah, right. Um, have we got time for another one? Or... Um, no, uh, it's it's time for our interview. Do you like bears, Kev? Yeah, I love bears. I wonder what it would be like to live in a country where you do have to be slightly um, slightly aware that if you get out of your car and, and, you know, on one of the freeways or something, that you might well be bumping into a bear. It'd be a bit weird, wouldn't it? Yeah. I, re- I, re- I remember <laughs> we talked about skiing last week and I came down that, that mountain and I stopped, t- took my skis off and uh, I, s- I stood in absolute silence. And made the and had the X one hundred on me. It would have been a T probably then, um, or maybe an F. And um, I stood and just made pictures. And I, I got down the bottom, and the guy said to me, "You got off your skis, did you? Yeah, yeah." And he said, "And you were all on your own, were you? Yeah, yeah, on that mountain. Yeah, right. Okay." He said, "Next time, be a little bit careful about the bear." And I, I never work out whether he was uh, serious or just winding up the English skier. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Where was this? Norway? It was Norway. Do you get a lot of bear in Norway? You do in Finland. Yeah, I think you probably do get some. Do you? Oh, I should yeah. be a lot more careful next time. <laughs> I can't imagine they'd put a ski run right the way through a dangerous bear resort, though. Anyway, they might <laughs> it's not a bear resort. <laughs> <laughs> They'll go on their holidays waiting for unsuspecting English skiers. Anyway, this is Simon Blakesley, who is, uh, well, he's, he's an aviation photographer. And a while back he wrote in, do you remember he wrote in with a question that he was having trouble with focusing for aircraft yeah. that were coming towards him? He sorted that now. And uh, he said that was in no small way uh, down to your um, down to your advice, Kev. So it worked. It worked for him cool. perf- perfectly. Um, so uh, this week, uh, it was first of two parts, talking to Simon Blakesley, the, the aviation photographer in Canada. Simon, it's it's not so unusual to have a story from a photographer where their career or interest was inspired by a family member. Dad being a popular one, of course. And your dad had quite the story, didn't he? Tell, tell, tell me about his background. Well, dad was a Royal Navy fleet air arm photographer who joined the Royal Navy in 1946 at age 17. And I, I think it was really a case of he wanted to get away from home. He'd had a, another family member who showed him an interest in photography. And in very short order, uh, he had conducted his training near Portsmouth and then was uh, sent to Malta. And uh, by the late 40s, was um, a photographer with Lord Louis Mountbatten yeah. and um, living on the HMS Glory and other ships uh, as, as one of the ship's photographers. That's how he got his start in photography and um, quite a range of assignments, really. In the back then, I think you would do the kind of the journalistic press photography when, um, uh, you know, uh, somebody famous would come. For example, he would photograph Princess Elizabeth and Prince Philip, who had a very, um, I I think, affectionate connection to Malta. And so when they would come and do shipboard inspections and tours, he was assigned to photograph them. Uh, along with that, there were certainly the more, um, say, routine Navy uh, photography tasks, uh, aerial photography, aerial reconnaissance, uh, photographing landings, crash photographs on the on, on the deck of the, uh, you know, for investigative purposes, yeah. uh, as well as even, um, and I have the pictures that he's taken of these, of, of burials at sea. 
uh, of these very solemn events where uh, there will be the series of photos of uh, one of the sailors being committed to the ocean. So there was a whole breadth of photography that he would do up until he left the Navy in 1952. I I was sorry to hear that you you lost dad only a few years ago, and we'll come back to to that in a a, a short while. But but, uh, I'm intrigued to know whether... You have all the photographs then of of, of Dad. So are you, are you the um, are you the custodian of that archive? Well, custodian, I think, is a very very good term. In the when Dad passed in 2018, my three older brothers agreed. They said, "Right, you're you're the photographer in the family. Guess what? You get to mail the 20 odd boxes of 60 odd years of photographs, and then some back to your house in the Yukon." Which yeah. I did as we brought dad's affairs to a close and, um, you know, closed his house out. As for the Navy photos, uh, of course, many of those the Royal Navy would have. I mean, he was photographing for them. I guess my understanding would be that that would be their property. They would probably have them in an archive somewhere. But he did keep for himself um, a few albums, Mm. uh, which he would show to to my brothers and I as kids. And that's where I, I have photos of that he took of Princess Elizabeth and Prince yeah. Philip, um, the routine daily life at sea, photos of him, uh, you know, living his life in Malta and thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying it as a young man. So we have some photos. The majority of the photos we have, of course, are the fact that he shutterbugged us to death as children <laughs> <laughs> all the way through. So I would estimate I've probably got 20 odd thousand images, which my brothers have committed me to scanning and archiving, digitizing for them. Mm. And you know, on a cold winter's day here, I'm I'm happy to do that. I'm I'm, I'm intrigued because I know some through talking to military photographers that um, uh, you're right that the um, uh, the army or the air force or the navy, who, whoever your 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 station position with, they 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 keep the pictures and the negatives. But but many photographers carried another camera. And and I'm I'm assuming that sounds like your your father did as well. Yes, he would always talk about how some of the best cameras he would say were the German ones that were confiscated after the war. Yeah. And uh, yes, he would for himself. Uh, I think carry uh, you know six by six, two and a quarter square. You know things like Rollies, for example, with him. The majority of his work with the Navy was done with that, as well as four by five, as well as larger aerial cameras as well. Yes, I think he, like many of us who are interested in photography, we also have a good collection of the tools of the trade. No, this exciting career that he had, and there's no doubt about it, he travelled the world doing it. He 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 steered you away though. He wasn't keen on um, when when you showed your interest. He said, "No, I don't think that's that's the life." For you, son. Yes, and, and and I wouldn't say he went as far as forbidding me from it, but it was it was pretty strong terms. You know, I think Dad had he stayed in the Navy and he left in 1952, just as an aside, because his dad was in a really serious accident, and he, being the only son, immediately left to support his mom. Yeah. What good came out of it though is that my granddad in Leicester had a, a very caring nurse who my dad met, and that's my mom. So mom and dad met thanks to that. But so dad got out of the Navy. Uh, He became a a police officer in Leicester for a short time, wanted to be part of the photographic unit. Um, That didn't work out. And so he ended up working for Rolls Royce just at that stage where non-destructive testing, photography, ultrasound, et cetera, was coming. And he worked at the jet engine plant in uh, Mount Sorrel. But when I, I, so I going back to how he was involved in photography 
I mean, he, he was pretty specialized and had special jobs. I think what he saw as photography grew and developed is a dilution, a um, democratization, some may call it, of where more and more people had cameras, yeah. more and more people are taking photos, and many more people were referring to themselves as a photographer. So when I, in in my school days, w- would say, you know, I'd like to go to college and take a photography course, et cetera, he'd say, oh, he'd, he'd say, not bloody likely. Uh, you know, that was kind of the response. And he would say he wanted better for me. Yeah. Yeah, he would say that I don't want you chasing ambulances and photographing things just for the local newspaper. Not that that's a bad thing, but I think given his photographic experience, I think he was a bit forward-looking in that he saw that the field was changing over time and that it would become harder and harder for a person to make their mark unless they were very specialized, very trained, and and it would not be easy to do unless somebody was extremely committed. Well, he must have been very foresighted then because this was a while before digital that he was saying, well, we're seeing this democratization, proliferation of photography. Well, interestingly enough, I just finished reading um, Chris Bonanno's book about um, Polaroid and Edwin Land. Yeah. And I remember dad saying that he'd had the opportunity to invest in Polaroid in the, the 70s, a few hundred dollars, which he said he didn't have. But I think having just finished reading the book and seeing how the instant photography was going to become overtaken by digital, I mean, even Ansel Adams in the early 80s was quoted as saying that he saw the future of being some kind of digitized medium. Yeah. I, I think what, what it, it signaled for me was that he was saying just that the field was going to change, and, and, and most certainly it did, as we all, we all know, um, both technologically as well as in terms of access to, I mean, photography wasn't the kind of thing that... Um, uh, that just somebody who could afford a camera could do anymore. Yeah. Everybody could do it. You did end up, though, in the military. Yes. And I think it's about this time that you um, you actually put your cameras down as well. I mean, we will we will get to your photography soon, but there was almost a, a chance that you weren't going to pick up your cameras again anyway. Yes. And when I joined the Air Force in about 1983, film was still very much... Um, uh, prominent one-hour photos were were very common. Um, I worked in one on the side to help put me through university. So I was a one-hour printer and camera salesman, as well as jet engine mechanic on Royal Canadian Air Force aircraft. And right around, for me, it would be about 2000. I By that point, I had moved on to teaching. I had moved away from access to dad's darkroom, to the one-hour photo, where I live here in Whitehorse, there was one photo lab that would do medium format yeah. uh, developing. They closed down. And so my, you know, I used to use, um, you know, twin lens Mamiya C330s. I have dad's speed graphic 4x5, which oh, I loved wonderful. to use. Yeah. And I, I still have all of that and the Omega D6 and larger, all of those things put away. But I, I, with the, the, the photographic field at that point seeming to have both feet in the air, I didn't really know where to go. So I put it aside, totally, yeah. uh, other than maybe just a point-and-shoot camera. But even then, it was um, something I picked up more in a nostalgic way, um, wishing that things were the way they were, because I didn't really know which way what was digital uh, flash in the pan, was film going to make a resurgence, I just didn't know. But it was your dad, though, that uh, that came riding back into town on on his charger, saying, "Come on, <laughs> come on, son, it's 
time for you to pick your cameras up again. <laughs> after all, after all that, it was it was really he that was responsible for you uh, now being a professional photographer, he, he, un, unwittingly. Well, yes, and and how that came about was by about two thousand and five, I I was well immersed in my career as a teacher, yeah. school head, deputy head. I was engaged in just starting a PhD degree to become an educational researcher. And I remember saying to dad once on the phone, I said, dad, I, I miss photography so much. And I think he heard my voice break. Uh-huh. And he said, don't forget. He said that photography will always be ready for you when you're ready for it again. And I remember that so well. At that stage too, I had two young boys and and thanks to my wife, Janine, she said, uh, you know, you've got these two lads here. You're not taking any pictures of them. You got Shutterbug to death. Now it's their turn. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But so I I went and bought a, a Nikon D850 after doing quite a bit of research and, and with some trepidation started going back into photography. Mm. Funny thing was, I remember the first time I took some photos, edited it and edited the files and sent them to dad. He knew immediately, he says, something's different here. He says, um, have you changed cameras? And I know that not because he would go and look at the file and the naming and all of that. He just saw something different than the point and shoot mm-hmm. um, uh, photos that we had been taking snapshots. Did he, did he so, say, did he say what he saw? Was, was he specific? I, I think it was just more the sharpness, the clarity, okay. the, the, the images just seemed um, uh, a notch above what he'd been seeing for the past few years. So the aviation photography, when, when does that start then? Well, I guess it it always kind of was there in the background. When I was in the Air Force, I was always the fellow who had a camera. When I was posted to Germany for a short time, I mean, I was the one who took all the photos for the other fellas that that were there. How it really started out is that once I I started the PhD program, to access it, the, the program was in Vancouver, which is 800 miles south from here. I didn't know I, I was not going to do it because I thought I can't leave my family. I, I can't um, just pack up and go to school and say, see you in a few years time. And thankfully my academic advisor had just come from the university of Tel Aviv. So he had no idea of what Canadian geography was like. <laughs> and I called him up and I said, I'm sorry, I need to decline this offer. And he says, no, 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 no. Hold on. He says, how quickly can you be here on campus from Whitehorse? And I said, well, if I leave at 8 AM, I can be there by 1130. And he, he says, is that by car? I said, no, that's by jet. And he says, what's the difference? You're still here in three and a half hours. And all of a sudden, it was one of those big moments of where, right, I can do this. I went to Air North. Yeah. Um, I had a small scholarship. I booked a series of tickets. And I commuted once a week back and forth from Whitehorse to Vancouver to finish the required courses. Along the way, of course, I'm at airports. I'm around airplanes. What does a fellow who likes airplanes and photography do? <laughs> it was only natural. So one day I walked into the Air North office because I had this new D850. I had a 70 to 300 telephoto lens. I'd done some prints up and I walked in and I just put them on the counter in the main admin office. And I said, I'd like to drop these off. You can have them. And this fellow comes over and he says, those look pretty nice. I'd really like to have those. I said, well, you can have them. And he says, no, 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 no. He says, you've got to go up to the marketing department upstairs and talk about how we could use them. And I looked at him and I said, well, okay. I said, but who are you? And he says, my name's Joe Sparling. I own Air North. (laughs) So it was the owner. (laughs) And so since then, Joe and I have kind of laughed about this story because he's not somebody who really likes getting his photo taken. But over the years, we've come to a, a, 
a relationship and understanding where we chuckle about this. And now, 15 years later, I'm uh, yeah. heavily involved in doing Air North's photography for them. See, happenstance is one. I think this is happenstance, a bit of serendipity in there as well, isn't there? But wandering into an office, taking your prints, meeting the, the head honcho without even realizing it. Um, I, but you've still got to put yourself into those positions, haven't you? And it's, I think it's a wonderful, um, I, I hesitate to use this word, but, but I think it's the correct word. I think it's a wonderful naivety that, that yes. sometimes we, we should embrace and not think too much about it. Uh, as Nike say, just do it, which is what you, <laughs> which is what you did. Well, yes. And I mean, I was certainly nervous doing it. I mean, I'd been out of photography for a while. I think what helped very much is when engaging with people at the airline to be able to say the fact that I used to be a, a jet engine technician, I'm comfortable around the aircraft. They, they, they see that I have a bit of an understanding for aircraft operations. But also, too, with the photography, as they've got to know me, they, they know the story about dad. They know that this is something that I'm passionate about. It's, it's really part of who I am. I'm not doing it because I have to do it. I'm doing it because I want to do it. Yeah. Is it as glamorous right. as it looks? Um, when you're standing outside at minus 40 for an hour? Well, yeah, uh, I, did, I did see those. You, there, there are an awful lot of de-icing shots. <laughs> you know, I, I often tell people, I said, you know, it's, it, it can be like an hour's worth of sheer boredom followed by 30 seconds of sheer terror and <laughs> you know that no um is it as glamorous a lot of times i'm out there on my own yeah. and it's that i'm looking for that sunrise that sunset i know what the aircraft schedule is and i'm looking to do whatever i can to um photograph the aircraft in the best light and in the best yukon scenery that i can yeah. um along with it comes other photography that's that, that over the past few years I've grown into. Uh, yesterday, you mentioned you're having uh, an Indian dinner. I was photographing butter chicken for the flight kitchen yesterday. <laughs> Perfect. So, yeah. And so one of the things that Air North has done is they, and particularly with COVID, they had to shift and produced their flight kitchen meals for sale to the public. So those are for sale in stores. They did home delivery for people who needed it during the, the darker COVID times. And so I do the photography that I'll walk into my local grocers and I'll see a poster with uh, my, the, the meal choices and I photograph. Isn't that funny? Because I, I, I think people have probably quite cruelly um, their, their own um, interpretations and thoughts of what airline food actually is. And it's not always kind. And, and, and there's Air North actually providing it as the, evening, as the evening meal that you can get from your local grocery store. Absolutely. And Brilliant. I can say with <laughs> I can say, I, I know, and I can say without bias, and, and I know people might say, yeah, right, but they make the best lasagnas, the meals are healthy, uh, the chef at the flight kitchen and his team are dedicated to making wonderful meals, and um, there are times, of course, with COVID where there is no meal service on the aircraft due to health reasons, and people really miss that. But Air North is one of the few airlines that actually will still feed people. You'll get a warm cookie at the end of the flight, which is a little bit of a local uh, tradition that if, you, if the warm cookie wasn't there, uh, it could be, could, could be a riot. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, the, and, and I think, you know, food always brings people closer together. And I think they've, they've, they've helped to do that. The, the Yukoners are very proud of uh, their local airline. See, there's much to be said for airline food. And uh, I, for one, am actually really looking forward to sampling airline food once more because that spells the start of adventures again. And Simon 
returns for part two of his story next week, including how to photograph the night skies, and in particular, the northern lights. This week coming, Kev, of course, has his country music show on incapablestaircase.com. Country Boyo takes to the stage, or the airwaves, if you will, at 3.30pm UK time. Go to incapablestaircase.com. And then on Friday, the podcast, Photography Daily, is back with our regular end-of-the-week photo walk. Me with my camera and mailbag, you with your camera and thoughts. It's uh, the only show like it in the podcast sphere. And we have a guest too, a photographer who, during lockdown one in France, was forced to photograph within a a strict one-kilometre radius of her home. Now, that one kilometre just happens to be one of the most beautiful cities and shorelines in the world. The Côte d'Azur, more specifically, Nice. Her pictures of people on this stretch of shore are sublime. And she talks about the project, the portraits, and the privacy, too, on Photography Daily. Available wherever you get to your podcast or photographydaily.show. Right, back to your questions. Um, did you go last, Kev, or was it, was it me? I went last, yeah. I went last. Should I, I dig one out from... Uh, from email, from from email. Do you want a philosophy? Philo- philo- <laughs> I can't even say it. Do you want a phil- philoso- philosophical question? We got them in the Drinks end. Reception. Drinks reception. Or do you want a which long lens question? Oh, let's go philosophical. Phil- phil- philosophical. Hi, okay, fine, Neil. I hope you are both keeping well. This is from Helen Fennell. Um, as always, thank you for the wonderful podcast. Insert praise and adulation in brackets here. Um, I have a phil- 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 I'm going to have in trouble with this one today, Kev. I have a philosophical question. Uh, even worse, I have a philosophical photography question for you. I was on a photo workshop several years ago when one of the other delegates took an absolute stunner of a shot. We all said he should print it and put it on his wall. He looked horrified and said that displaying your own photography on your own walls was really self-obsessed. I was quite taken aback. I didn't really see it that way. The shots I take are, well, for me. I don't sell my photography and often the pictures remind me of the lovely adventures I've had with the delightful Mr F. Putting them up in our own home as a final printed image seems like quite a nice thing to do rather than having them stuck on a hard drive somewhere. So using your own photos for art in your own home, a sign of extreme narcissism or perfectly reasonable? Discuss from Helen. Oh, definitely reasonable. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. What's strange? I mean, I wouldn't have your pictures on my wall. No, obviously I'd have my pictures on my wall. (laughs) (laughs) No, No, I would. Um, Yeah, I've got... uh, Yeah, saying that, I haven't got any pictures of mine on the wall. But but yeah, I I think that's... Well, you have in your office, but then that's work um, things, isn't it, really? Well, yeah, but actually there's none on the wall. They're all leaning against the floor. But yes, yeah, I do have wedding pictures up here. Yeah. but not at home. Um, and that's purely because we're in an eternal state of, of moving and decorating things and stuff. Um, but you've also got one of these really interesting homes that has walls that go right angles and do all sorts of things at times when you're not quite expecting. Cause it's oh, like, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. Peri- no, it it's a period it house. It's difficult to get lots of uh, wall space, isn't it? It wouldn't look out of place down Diagon Alley, our house, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Back to the question, I think, yeah, what's the point otherwise? 
I think it's more narcissistic to think that other people would have your pictures on the wall than yourself. But that's the point of producing art, isn't it? Or producing pictures that you hope other people might might enjoy. I don't think there's well, anything absolutely, wrong, wrong but, with that. But, but, yeah, no, I totally agree Otherwise with that. Otherwise an but artist wouldn't, is, wouldn't paint a picture. What I'm saying is, if you if you think it's narcissistic to have pictures of your own pictures on your own wall, yeah. isn't it not more narcissistic to think that other people would, you know, digging into the philosophical element of this, isn't it more narcissistic to think that other people should have your pictures on their wall? Yeah. I mean, it only becomes a bit awkward if you, um, every time somebody comes around your house, you march them around like it's a gallery explaining <laughs> how, how you took each picture and what it means to you. Maybe yeah. maybe then, but you're not going to be doing that. No, absolutely. And, um, yeah, and, and even... Yeah, uh, no, uh, we do. We have one. Actually, I'm thinking about our house. As you go through our ridiculously small porch now, that doesn't isn't big enough for all the shoes and stuff. We got a picture up. That's it. That's yeah. the and it's the first thing you see before you trip over the shoes, and then uh, and then the dogs bite your ankle, and that's it in terms of pictures. There's, there's, there's nothing uh, right now. God, that, that, that the person that said that, Helen, must be really. Well, they must have. They must have a a very clinical house because uh, is that the right word but then i mean they mustn't have anything on the walls then because in that in that respect then they wouldn't have pictures of their family of any special occasions wedding the kids the dogs the cats well that's it maybe they're th maybe they're maybe that there's parts of this question we don't understand they're, we don't have yeah. there's elements that we don't have maybe they're on about you know like art i don't know landscape picture or something rather than personal snaps of the family and all that kind of stuff. But that's, we don't yeah. know all, oh, of the, yeah. all of the parameters to it. But yes, ultimately, yeah, stick pictures on the wall. Of stick course. your pictures on the wall. If of you course. like them, stick them on there and look at them. If you go somewhere, I mean, I, I always like that picture you made. Um, oh, what was the landscape um, award you got? Do you remember that one? Tokyo. Tokyo, Tokyo. Was Tokyo wasn't it? I, I, that, that image. I mean, that if you had west and east and north and south wings, Kev, that one most definitely would be a big print somewhere in your house, surely. Uh, <laughs> no? Okay. It's not. Yeah, it is in other people's houses. I know that. I know that a yeah. couple of the um, marketing team in Tokyo have got it. But, a lot, but, but for you, it would be time that you spent in Tokyo that you enjoyed, that brings back a memory, some very happy memories. And what, I, I can't see a reason for not having that on your own wall. Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't have it because I don't. I just don't I don't have it printed out anywhere at the moment. But yes, right. absolutely, totally agree, one hundred percent. Yeah. So yeah. I think that person, Helen, was being a miserable old sausage. Yeah, mate. Just give him a big cuddle, <laughs> big hug. <laughs> Is that your answer to it? But it also, I mean, it might he might not be able to take praise very well. It could be just the other thing, you know. Yeah, it could be. There could that, be all uh, kinds of things that, going that, on. I'm there. saying him. I don't know. Is it? Oh no, it was a he. Yeah. Um, uh, it might be just his, you know, like, get away. No, it's no good. You know, it could could have just been his way of of uh, of dealing with praise. Good question, though. And, yeah. th and thank you for making me read phil 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 philosophical a few times. Mm -hmm. Right, your turn. Oof. All right, this is a big one. This is from John Taylor. Uh, hi, Kev. Hi, Neil. Um, right, strap yourself in. Uh, a question that's less about the objective mechanisms, uh, or, or sorry, the objective mechanics or specifications of a camera kit, and more about the subjective assessment of the most important part of a camera, mainly the 12 inches behind it. Right. Uh, the, I'm, I measured my head once. It's not 12 inches. What? Your head? Yeah. Right. Is your t get, have you got a ruler? Mm, I've got, well, I've got a tape. You need a tape measure, not a ruler. Well, a 12-inch ruler is 12 inches, isn't it? Yeah. 
Well, see if your head is is twelve inches wide. I've got to take my headphones off. From the back it. to your eyes, or to the end of your nose. I'll take my headphones off from the nose to the back of your head. And I, I bring the ruler around. <laughs> no. Oh, exactly. Is it shorter much, or, or longer? Much bigger than twelve inches around the, oh. the circumference. Mm. Well, you can't. You your <laughs> head. Look, I'm not <laughs> Wasn't it Richard Abaddon or, or uh, was it? Uh, it was some famous photographer said the most important part of the camera is the twelve inches behind it. <laughs> yeah, it was. And maybe that's through the head. <laughs> well, every, everybody write in and tell me how many inches your head is. Just your head. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Well, the trouble is now. I'd have to bend the ruler to to me. <laughs> yeah, do it. Do it with a twelve-inch ruler, people, rather than do it with a with a, a, a you know a waist measure. Oh, do you don't mean circumference? Do you? Do you mean straight through the head? Not circumference. No. Like, <laughs> oh, I think you meant round round your head. No. Oh, in the which case it's less than twelve inches. Yeah. You said much bigger. I was like, oh my god, you got you need to go see the head doctor. <laughs> no. Oh, now I see what you mean. Right. Okay. Uh, anyway, okay, we're still only in the first paragraph, and there's yeah, twenty. Paragraphs. Yeah, this could be a long one. Uh, the question is, how do you know you are improving? Uh, a bit of context to this. This question stems from a conversation I'd had with another photographer. He believes that the only ingredient necessary to know if a picture is successful is your own satisfaction with it. I agree with this to a certain extent. In most creative endeavors, you can argue the only person you need to surpass is yourself. Yeah. But, 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 but I also have watched a fair bit of X Factor. And as we know, the auditions are full of people who are satisfied with their own singing, but fail to gain any external opinions. With regard to the success of a picture or body of work, I believe external feedback from someone you respect is often more valuable than your own assessment, purely because it is potentially prone to the sort of delusion we see on reality TV. In other words, you don't know what you're doing, or you don't know what you don't know, is what he says. My Instagram uh, biography probably overcompensates the other way as it reads... No idea what I'm doing 93% of the time. And he goes on to say, I basically knock 1% off uh, every time people I respect say something that makes me feel like I'm genuinely progressing. That's very good. So that means seven people have said to him, "Uh, you're really good. Seven people he respects. But I'm aware that this overcompensation has an insidious nature. It leads you down the dark path of looking for validation. Maybe some people have a stronger case of imposter syndrome than others. But after over 20 years as a creative director, I've met a lot of cocksure blaggers. Cocksure blaggers, in it, sir. Uh, (laughs) Eager to dispense their knowledge from distinctly shaky foundations. So I'd rather err on the side of caution as a relatively new photographer. I definitely agree with Kevin Mullins' philosophy of it doesn't have to be good. It just has to be important for you. Yes. It's and a lot of my shots are live in this space, as most of my photography is personal family documentary. Mm-hmm. I make no money from it, therefore I don't really compete with anyone in a professional sense. But even within this space, there is a difference between a snapshot and something a bit more competent mm. uh, uh, than the more artful, luminous stuff you see from the likes of Alan Labois or Christopher Anderson, for example. Mm. So even with the just important caveat, the question remains: if we can't always trust our own opinion. And if relying on external critique can be seen as either needy or positively subjective, depending on the source of that critique, how do you know if you're improving? I, you can do the Facebook questions from now on, Neil. <laughs> They're longer than the emails. <laughs> um, I, I think it, it, it is important to get um, th- third party to look across your work sometimes. But I'm, I'm going to use an artist um, uh, for, for my answer, really. Um I mean, look at Salvador Dali or Pablo Picasso and the the work that they produced. Do you think for one moment that some somebody sat down with Picasso and said, "I'm afraid your eyes are wrong on that picture"? 
You're, no, really, you need to go back to the drawing board. If, if that's what your girlfriend looks like, of course not, because it became his style and it became, um, it, it was his life's work and his vision. And thank God he didn't listen to probably a lot of other people that said, this is this is not right, this doesn't... Do you see what I mean? And the same can mm-hmm. happen with photography, I think. Yeah, so there's two... There's two. Yeah, I agree with you. There's two things I picked up in that um, monologue. <laughs> yeah, one is that uh, the... the um, <laughs> uh, well, ultimately, the, the... You know, people do uh, wrongly, in my opinion, personal opinion, but it is my personal opinion, uh, the, have the currency of likes as justification for yes. stuff. Oh, very much. Um, you know, and, and if your only if your only out, output is in social media, Facebook, and what have you, yes. um, then it kind of makes sense that you're you, you know you you measure yourself on likes and various things like that. But then I suppose that that leads itself to the question of what's your objective here? You know, is are you creating this stuff because you want likes or are you creating it because you want other people to look at it and enjoy it or not enjoy it? Um, so that, that's a slightly, you know, different take on things. However, if you, uh, you know, as John says, he's not a professional photographer. So ultimately his pictures are for his own personal enjoyment. Yeah. And for his, um, uh, you know, his families. And then he referenced people like Alan Lebois, who uh, that's how it started for him. But then he, but Alan Lebois is now a professional photographer in that he sells those pictures. He sells books of his family. He's, and they're beautiful. Oh, they're, they're, they're just a truly incredible pictures, aren't they? But I have also, uh, I've also seen in, in, the, in the good old uh, interweb, you know, people play down Alan's work and other people's work and then arguments start and, you know, who are you to say this and who are you to say that? And actually then the counter argument is, well, you put it in the public place, so mm. why shouldn't I have an opinion I on it? I wouldn't have thought Alan is, is, is even in the slightest bit interested. Well, anyway, whatever. But lots of people do fall into that, you yeah. know. Here's a picture. Here's a picture of mine. Uh, like it. Everybody like it. Everybody like it. Everybody like it. And then somebody says, well, actually, it's all right. But, you know, it could be cropped a bit better or whatever yeah. well i didn't intend it to be cropped that way you know it's it, i don't care what you think it's what my family thinks that's it there's all kinds of uh you know perspective of perspectives on this i think um but ultimately yes definitely i think having a another voice um uh, you know talk to you about your, your pictures is good and but always remember always 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 remember it's very subjective yeah. there are um you, you know there's certain there are certain parameters that are pretty much unmovable things like composition crop in uh, you know corners all that kind of stuff things that can improve a picture almost always but ultimately the content and the context is is very subjective who did who did you choose to go to in the early days kev to get feedback on your work if you did well i i did uh portfolio reviews with uh for my wedding stuff with jeff askoff yep uh they were very very good he was very good at it and ultimately for me i mean i had I mean, my, well, my uh, social just, media... Just, just before you go to the social media stuff, because um, it is important, uh, did your pictures change or, or your trajectory of the way you made pictures change because Jeff Askoff said um, you should change this, this, this and this, which you would rightly expect him to say if he were doing a portfolio review? Yes, to a certain extent. I certainly remember elements of, I mean, it was quite a while ago, but I do certainly remember elements of conversations I had where I was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. I don't think about, I don't think about that enough. Um, you know, so yeah, absolutely. I remember one I did with him, which was more of a, like a look at a whole wedding. And yeah. there was, you know, it was kind of like, I wouldn't include that picture. I wouldn't include that picture. I would include that picture, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, you know, and, and that's, that's a good thing because you don't have to agree. And I always say, cause I, I do portfolio reviews now. And I, I say to people, look, just because I don't necessarily think that picture is strong does not mean that you have to agree with me, mm. but this is my take on it. This is the reason why I think this is the case. And then it's up to you to, you know, you, you should never, ever expect the opinions of others to dictate what you do. You should take it on board and either agree with it or learn from it or discard it because mm. you know, discarding it is is very is a valid thing actually no i don't agree with that that's fine also well social you then you were going to talk about the the affirmation provided by um I think yeah so social media you yeah. don't have you know i i don't have a massive massive social media following but i have a reasonable amount which is odd because i don't put anything on there anymore and and i've had you know i've had my fair share of mostly positive stuff but occasionally i get you know people say well this is just rubbish and it makes me think and i think maybe it is maybe it's not and and so i always try and uh, well i remember having one conversation with one guy he was like um this is awful all your stuff's awful i don't understand why you're an ambassador blah 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 all this kind of stuff and so i messaged him privately and i was like that's fine i i, I get it but can you explain why it's awful? And he tried to explain. In fairness to him, we had a re- you know we had a reasonably grown up conversation, okay. and uh, it, but the explanation wasn't very well grounded, uh, so I kind of discarded it in the end. But you know, had he said it's awful because of these reasons, and maybe like Jeff had said about certain pictures, you know, that's that's just not good enough. Then I would have I'd have taken it on board. But ultimately, the more you put your stuff in front of people, the more your feedback you should get will get. Whether that's good or bad, you have to be able to accept it. A lot of the stuff that you receive in social media, though, um, I say a lot. That's that's a sweeping generalisation. Some of the stuff you receive on social media is is always going to have um, a, a, a base that's been laid by jealousy or envy. Yeah, I mean that's that's fine, but that, I mean that's another conversation, isn't it? But it's it's the opinions of of pictures that's that's important i think yeah. and and you know i guess what i'm saying is if you're putting your pictures out there in a public place regardless whether they are uh for personal or or commercial reasons then you you must expect people to have an opinion on it mm. whether they they voice that opinion or not is is another thing so yeah it's it's there and you know ultimately the end of the, at the end of um john's question said how do you know you're improving the heart that's one of the hardest questions isn't it you uh I went through an exercise during the, you know, one of the last lockdowns um, where I got all of my old, literally every single wedding, apart from the first year, because I, I seem to have lost those. But uh, every single wedding I've got now available to me, the full wedding edit um, on my drive. And, and Paul was here, Paul Waring was here, who listened to the show a couple of days ago. And I was, we were going through one of my first weddings and it was my word, it was very easy for me to say that I think I've improved. Um, <laughs> but when you, when you, at the point where somebody ever thinks, yeah, I'm all right at this, I'm good at this, then I think that's dangerous. Mm. That's dangerous. You know, mm. if you ever think, yeah, okay, fair enough. You might think I, I can do this. I can make a living from this. But if you ever start thinking, yeah, I'm good at this, then I think, I don't know, it's hard, isn't it? Because for some people, I don't know. But yes, ultimately, you should always be improving. A level, um, of, a level of confidence is not a bad thing. Yeah, that's a, le- a level of arrogance is something to be very yeah. wary about. And you must be able to take criticism, yeah. uh, you know, constructive criticism. Yeah. And there are, there are people who, who can't. Here's one from uh, Nariman Masavi, uh, who is in, well, it was a, a cold part of the world. This, oh, yes, Vancouver, Canada. I, I don't want to get this idea that I think Canada is just really cold. 
Um, but uh, you, you sent a beautiful picture in of it's a snow scene with somebody walking off in the background uh, with a, a dog on a leash on each and each and each hand. Um, wonderful, beautiful scene. Thanks for the podcast, gents. Been tuned in for some time. Definitely a better photographer because of Kev. <laughs> I was inspired by your photo films and have started making my own. I use Artlist for background music, but uh, I'd like to include some recorded material as well. Please recommend a suitable microphone or microphones that I should use. I'd like to be able to capture me and my friends drinking in a bar. And I also want to capture environmental sounds when I wander the streets or go on hikes. I've got an XT4, not sure if that matters. And uh, <laughs> your words, not mine. And I've included some sample photos so you get a, a sense of the sort of environments I'd like to record in. Well, the first one was the snow scene. That's beautiful. Um, the other one was a slightly sunnier day in Vancouver with uh, somebody on a skateboard. So already I'm hearing that board going past, left to right. And then the two dogs. That looks like a very, very quiet scene in, in a home. And then the bar, the bar area. Do you know what I hate seeing in bars, Kev? Great big perspex screens between bartender and you. Yeah, sorry, that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to seeing go. The barriers that we've set between ourselves during, yeah. during this time. So they're the pictures. The snow scene that I described, the, the skateboarder, the dogs quietly asleep. Oh, no, not asleep, just, just taking quiet time. And then the, uh, the bar. It, it looks like one of those very, very typical sort of uh, bars in a small town, you know, or wood panelling up in the... You know the kind of thing, don't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So, microphone-wise... Well, Kev, actually... I mean, I'm, I'm going to suggest some microphones, of course, because it's something that... And I'm not sure whether Nariman's talking about your photo films or mine, but in terms of those that you make with sound, getting getting some sort of... Uh, some um, wild track, as, as you might call it, um, yeah, it can really make a picture sing. If, and, and so you could use something like a... A Zoom H1, if you're going to be outside, such as that snowy pitch, you probably need to put a dead cat over it so that you don't get too much from the wind. Mm -hmm. That can be a good one. If you're miking people individually, Zoom do a nice new um, F2 um, microphone. They they have the F1. Now, the F2 is quite good because um, it uses a bit of what's called floating... um, Oh, floating bit technology, which means that you'll never get a bad level, in essence. You just record somebody and then, then fix it straight away in post afterwards mm-hmm. or, or adjust it in post. That's a very, very good system. A little bit pricey, but um, you get what you pays for. And I think the yeah. H1, the H1 is a really good all-rounder. But the reason I wanted to ask you is you had an amazing um, microphone, Kev, where you recorded your family um, and it was Gemma on the left and then sort of crossing the room, then around you. What was that system you had? Oh, the 3D, yeah, the oh, 3D audio. It was brilliant. Oral, oh. 3D oral stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine that with pictures? That would really bring yeah, things alive, that. wouldn't it? I might do my radio show with that one day. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> well, that would confuse um, people. <laughs> yeah, that you can. Yeah, but you wouldn't want to take that to a pub because it actually looks like a head with ears. <laughs> oh, was it one of those ones? Oh, yeah, yeah, it has to look like ears because it it um, it, it works the way that ears work. So it looks yes. it physically looks like ears. Because yeah. we we of course we channel sound through through our ear canals, don't we? In a way that microphones don't. Um, yeah, so absolutely. yes, that's why. So that would look yes, that would look a bit odd. Yeah, I brought, I brought um, my head to have a drink. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, ultimately, if if you are just after kind of for you know something to do, personal stuff and everything, your phone is perfectly reasonable, yeah. you know, especially bar ambience, bar music, bar yeah, yeah, sounds yeah. and stuff. 
Uh, and and what you'll find as soon as you start poking proper micro- leaving proper microphones on the table or you know poking them in people's faces, then you're especially in a bar, people mm. will behave differently. They will say they will either play up to it or they'll stop talking, and you know things will change. So just kind yeah, of- on on your phones, there's an app I use called Alon. A-L-O-N, Alon Dictaphone, and it's a really good recorder. I know a lot of journalists who use it. Just put a, And then you can put a dead cat on the, on the bottom of your microphone if you're outside so it doesn't get the wind noise again. That's yeah. a brilliant. Just, it, it, it's, um, it's a microphone in one. Of late, I started um, using my great big blimp um, when I'm doing my photo walks, mm. which is a huge, very intrusive-looking microphone. But actually, it served me quite well in that people started saying, Oh, what's that then? And then they wanted to talk to you. Yeah. So if you're trying to be a magnet, I suppose that that could help in a way. But um, are you going to do any more with that that microphone, Kev? <laughs> I don't know. I just think, as soon as you mentioned it, I was like, where is that? <laughs> <laughs> where did I put that head that records things? Where it is? <laughs> I must. It must have looked a bit spooky, actually, wasn't it? <laughs> it's great fun. It is great fun. I am going to do something with it. Was it easy? Is you can't plug it into a device. You have to. It can only plug into a three and a half mil something rather than news. But it, it it was really good. I mean, uh, you you did a didn't you do some sort of um, did a horror film? A horror, yeah, that was it. Yeah, a a, uh, a trailer for a horror film. Yeah, it was that was great fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah, you, you scared the bejesus out of your young Albie. You did. I'm gonna try and <laughs> next week. I'm gonna try and record the podcast on it. No, I wonder if we can do that. Yeah, no, but I don't. I don't know. Work. Would it, no, I don't think it would come across through. Skype in the or, or Zoom in the same way, would it? I'm not sure whether the do. It's just three and a half mil recording. I don't know if I can get it into my my road desk. Oh, I don't know. Right. Oh, well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. We'll find out next week. Yeah, <laughs> that could be an utter disaster. Well, that's it for this week. If you like this week's show and your podcast player is one of those uh, flavors that lets you, and of course, if you feel it's relevant, we'd love you to leave a review. Um, and you can share the episode on Twitter or, fa- or Facebook, and you'll be an absolute star. Thank you to our patrons. See you in the Facebook group for any questions that you have about today's show. We haven't said for a while, Kev, play nice, because our mods, Steve and Peter, are in there. Just keeping an eye on stuff. Although, mm-hmm. is Steve still speaking to you after last week's uh, cricket mentions? <laughs> no, I'm not <laughs> I, I didn't think you had. <laughs> Send your questions and stuff in to clickofujicast.co.uk, or of course, if you're in the Facebook group, um, group leave them in the uh, in the thread there. Um, and we will see all oh, music for Blue Wednesday, supporting music from the incredible Artlist.io, or part two as well. Um, from Simon Blakesley will be next week. Uh, we will see you next week. Bye bye. Bye bye. The FujiCast is an independent loading zone production. Email the show with your questions and words of wisdom to click at fujicast.co.uk. Email any complaints and political nonsense to our wives who will deal with your comments in their own good time and in their own good way.